Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. And last week I lamented the fact that the pastor of a certain parish in my diocese had announced that the traditional Latin Mass celebrated there for many years is suddenly being canceled in obedience to Pope Francis's motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, and Father Roach's uh, subsequent rescript, confirming that the Mass of Our Fathers and Our Patron Saints is now absolutely verboten in Catholic parish churches. Well, the next day I received an email uh, taking me for to task for suggesting that it was the pastor's decision, and I defended myself by responding that the only available public witness was the pastor's letter wherein he took sole responsibility. Well, since then, however, my correspondence suspicions have been confirmed by our own Charles Coulomb, author, historian, and host of The Never-Ending Struggle right here on VMPR. Yesterday, in an online article for Crisis Magazine, Sir Charles confirms, quote, the latest development in the ongoing saga of Traditionis Custodes is the result of the Archbishop of Los Angeles, Jose Gomez, and the Bishop of Orange, Kevin Van, being taken in for questioning by the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States, Christophe Pierre, as to their alleged non-compliance with Traditionis Custodes. And the result, as I reported last week, is that in Orange County, the Venerable Tridentine Mass at St. Mary's by the Sea, which Charles rightly points out quite literally saved the parish's life when it was brought in, is now canceled. Well, I didn't mention any names last week, but obviously folks knew the situation, and since Charles has gone public, there's no longer any need for me to be coy. But that's Orange. What about uh, L.A.? In Los Angeles, uh, Charles says the torture is a bit more exquisite. Because you see, from now on in the L.A. diocese, wherever the traditional mass had been integrated into the lives of regular parishes, said masses are forthwith to be moved from the church building to the gymnasium. Now, this carries a certain personal irony for me in that the very first traditional Latin mass I ever attended was celebrated in a gym. Uh, in those days, my local Latin mass community had to celebrate mass on a basketball court because there was no room in the inn. And then I discovered the indult mass at St. Mary's by the sea. And this, of course, this is back in the turn of the century. And then, of course, uh, in 2007 came some more on pontificum. But that was then. Now it has been apparently confirmed that Father Chu, the pastor at St. Mary's, did not make the decision to cancel the traditional Latin mass in a vacuum. Uh, so, you know, allow me to say that I appreciate the fact that neither Cardinal Gomez nor Bishop Van just went quietly into that good night, but rather brokered compromises with the nuncio. The uh, school gym is certainly not a parish church, but it does mean that in Los Angeles, the traditional Latin Mass is still being celebrated on parish property. And, on um, you know, um, unfortunately for St. Mary's by the Sea, there is no longer a traditional Mass there, but as of last Sunday, there was a new traditional Latin Mass being celebrated in the Diocese of Orange, though technically it's a private Mass and, and not at a parish church. But Cardinal Gomez and Bishop Van are both princes of the church who, trying to make the best of a difficult situation, found ways to satisfy the letter of the law without utterly abandoning the traditional Latin Mass Catholics of their respective flocks. And for that, I suppose we should be grateful. And yet such affairs as these certainly qualify as lacrimae rerum. That's things that call for tears. 
Mr. Coulomb goes on to say, I do not blame either of the local prelates involved. They do what any branch manager does when orders come from corporate headquarters to initiate a new policy, regardless of their personal opinions. And he admits that he has, quote, enormous personal affection for Archbishop Gomez, as I do for Bishop Venn. But, he says, as this latest development shows, all that blather about collegiality at Vatican II was just that. Rather than collegiality among the successors of the apostles in this pontificate, the church has become the papal dictatorship that the Orthodox have always accused us of being. And he's not wrong. Also, yesterday I encountered another related story, albeit obliquely related, just stay with me. According to the National Catholic Register of 11 September 2023, quote, the incoming prefect of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith has warned that bishops who think they have a special gift of the Holy Spirit to judge the doctrine of the Holy Father are on a road to heresy and schism. Now, I read this to my wife and her reaction was probably the same as yours. She said, the doctrine of the Holy Father? The doctrine? Yeah, you heard right. Pope Francis is no longer the guardian of doctrine. He is now the author of doctrine. A few days ago, or weeks ago, I should say, on this program, we took a long look at the new head of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, Archbishop and now Cardinal-designate Victor Manuel Fernandez, author of that seminal work of Catholic theology, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. Yes, in in an exclusive interview with Register Correspondent Edward Penton, the Pope's new doctrines are, said, quote, the Pope not only has a duty to guard and preserve the static deposit of faith, but also a second unique charism only given to Peter and his successors, which is a living and active gift. I do not have this charism, nor do you, nor does Cardinal Raymond Burke. I believe that's a reference to the fact that Cardinal Burke has often expressed concerns about some teachings of this pontificate and has been sharply critical of the upcoming synod on synodality, including in the foreword that he wrote for the recent book, The Synod on Synodality is a Pandora's Box. So Mr. Michael Whitcraft will be on the show later to talk about that, uh, about that new book. But as regards this alleged unique charism, Uh, that is apparently something other than infallibly safeguarding the deposit of faith. Fernandez says, quote, today only Pope Francis has it, unquote. So clearly Benedict XVI was wrong when he said the Pope's ministry is a guarantee of obedience to Christ. The Pope is not an absolute monarch whose thoughts and desires are law. He must not proclaim his own ideas but rather constantly bind himself and the church to obedience to God's word in the face of every attempt uh, to adapt it or water it down and every form of opportunism. The power of teaching in the church involves a commitment to the servants of obedience to the faith. Now, this, of course, is entirely consistent with the, the dogmatic teaching of the church. So what does this have to do with you and me? Okay, the faithful are called to make a permanent commitment of obedience to the truth. Therefore, the truth to which they commit their obedience must be permanent. 
A permanent commitment requires a permanent truth. I do not believe that there is any obligation for the faithful to obey anything that's contrary to what's been handed down through tradition by the will of God. And that is, after all, the ex cathedra teaching of Vatican I. Hence, also, that understanding of its sacred dogmas must be perpetually retained, which Holy Mother Church has once declared, and there must never be a recession from that meaning under the specious name of a deeper understanding, unquote. Now, Archbishop Fernandez said, now, if you tell me that some bishops have a special gift of the Holy Spirit to judge the doctrine of the Holy Father, there it is again, we will enter into a vicious circle where anyone can claim to have the true doctrine, and that would be heresy and schism. Now, he said, uh, in, in a display of, of typical Francis here nonsense, um, what he said, he's tilting at windmills. It doesn't require a special gift of the Holy Spirit to know the doctrine of the church. If that were true, it would be impossible to make the profession of faith. You see, in, in that sense, all Catholics can claim to have the true doctrine. That's what makes them Catholic. The problem arises if or when someone, and even an angel from heaven, should preach a different gospel, that is, a different doctrine than the apostles preached. And yes, the Pope does have a unique charism to speak infallibly on matters of faith and morals, but never in a way that contradicts what the Church has once declared. I certainly have no special charism by which to judge the Pope's doctrine, quote-unquote, because there can be no papal doctrine per se, no, no doctrine that's different from that, that which is contained in the deposit of faith. And that's no nonsense. Okay, last week uh, I talked about the necessity for the Catholic Christian to have a close and personal relationship with Jesus. An uh, imitation of Christ, most popular work in the Middle Ages, Thomas Akempis prays to Jesus, and so I come to the realization that I cannot fully trust anyone to help me in my necessities, but only you, my hope, my trust, my comfort, my most faithful friend. I might have mentioned that in my second favorite non-biblical spiritual reading uh, is A Book of the Love of Jesus, which was written by a medieval English hermit named Richard of Hampole. And it exemplifies this familiar friendship with Jesus that's advocated by the imitation. And so I said last week, uh, the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus is not a new idea. It's not Protestant. It's not even medieval. It is, in fact, biblical, and it is most certainly and traditionally Catholic. And I mentioned that in a book called A Personal Relationship with Jesus, Father Bill McCarthy, God rest his soul, demonstrates how prayer is the key to this relationship. And this is what I didn't have time for last week. He says, the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus. The heart of that relationship is love. The heart of love is communication. We communicate with Jesus through prayer. John Paul II said we must practice prayer as a reciprocal conversation with Christ, or as Bishop Sheen used to say, prayer is a dialogue. And so we hear from God in many ways, and, and we'll talk about that when we uh, come to the other side of this break. For now, since Catholic after this.
Welcome back. We were talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and I was talking about my friend, the dear departed Father Bill McCarthy, who quite literally wrote the book, A Personal Relationship with Jesus. And and like I said in the last segment, he says the, the key to this relationship is prayer, because uh, a personal relationship is about love, and the heart of love is communication. And we communicate with Jesus through prayer. Like I said, John Paul II said prayer needs to be a reciprocal conversation. Bishop Sheen said prayer is a dialogue. So how does Jesus speak to us? I mean, I understand how I I speak to him in prayer. How does he respond? St. Augustine said we speak to God through prayer, and he answers through Holy Scripture. So Christ speaks to us externally and primarily through daily Bible reading and also through the catechism through the people in our lives, our bishops and other priests, uh, and priests and, and other people, I should say, the lives of the saints, uh, the circumstances of our own lives. That's exter- ex- external. But he also speaks to us interiorly or internally through our own thoughts. Father McCarthy says his voice normally sounds like the spontaneous flow of insights that come into our mind. So what psychologists call the inner monologue. Well, the key is making this inner monologue an inner dialogue. And that is why the six or six of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are thought gifts. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, counsel, prophecy, conscience. God works from within to inspire our minds with his wisdom and our hearts with his love. And one of the best ways to grow in that personal relationship with Jesus is through consecration to him through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Consecration to Jesus through Mary. And this is a nice segue into our next topic, which is that September is the month of the seven sorrows of Mary. You know, we think of October being the month of the Rosary and May being the month of Mary, but September is a month specifically dedicated to her sorrows, and it was through her sorrows that she is most closely connected to Jesus in his passion. Uh, The memorial of the seven sorrows of Mary is coming up this Friday, but last Friday was also uh, a Marian holy day, which we didn't have time to talk about last week, the feast of the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, uh, children were such a blessing in ancient culture. It was a common theme in the Bible that it was considered a, a punishment from God for a couple to be without children. And according to the tradition, the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saints Anne and Joachim, were both childless and far advanced in years. So Joachim and Anne earnestly promised God that if he would give them a child, they would dedicate the child to his service. (laughs) Little did they know, right? At last, God answered their prayers, granted them a daughter who they named Miriam or Mary. She was born in Nazareth, presumably in the house where the angel Gabriel later appeared to her to announce that she was to be the mother of the Messiah. Today, the Basilica of the Annunciation stands over the very place where that house once stood. And the Nativity of Mary is unique in that it is only one of three birthdays that are celebrated in the Catholic liturgy. And this is by virtue of her being only one of three people after the fall of Adam and Eve to be born without original sin. Three, you say? Yes. Uh, our Lord Jesus, of course, because he was God-made man. And Mary, who is the Immaculate Conception, that is, she was miraculously preserved from all stain of original sin from from the moment of her conception. But third is St. John the Baptist. 
you know, uh, this is a longstanding tradition of the church that although John the Baptist was conceived in original sin, just like everybody else, the angel Gabriel prophesied to his father, Zechariah, in Luke 115, even when he is still in his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is what we call the state of grace. But the presence of original sin is incompatible with sanctifying grace. Hence, the tradition that St. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and freed from original sin at the time of the visitation, which we read about in Luke 1.41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And then it says that uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So even though he was conceived with original sin, tradition says he was born free of its stain. According to the old Catholic encyclopedia, this is in keeping with his role as forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, no one has been greater than John the Baptist. And John's greatness consists primarily in being chosen to announce the coming of the kingdom of God, an office for which he was prepared even before his birth. Now, virtually all the other saints are honored on the date of their death, or in some few cases, um, for bishops or popes, on the day of their uh, ordination, their Episcopal consecration, I should say, when they were made bishop. And we also honor our Lord and Our Lady and St. John the Baptist on the days when they departed the earth. So Good Friday and the Assumption and the beheading of John the Baptist, respectively. But only for these three do we also celebrate their birthdays in the liturgical year. I just find that fascinating, maybe something you weren't already aware of. Now, as you might imagine, uh, there grew up a number of small tea traditions around the Feast of the Nativity of Mary. In the Middle Ages, the birthday of our Blessed Mother marked the end of summer and the beginning of harvest season. In the old Rituale Romanum, there is a blessing of the summer harvest and fall planting uh, for this day. Uh, in the Alps, in Austria, this day was known as Drive Down Day, because on this day the cattle and sheep would be driven from their summer pastures in the slopes down into their winter quarters in the valleys. And as you might imagine, this was a huge undertaking, like a caravan or procession. And the people would dress in all their traditional finery, right, in their national costumes. And there would be decorations and, and festivity. In some parts of Austria, milk from that day, that was milked that day, the leftover food is all given to the poor in honor of Our Lady's Nativity. And it's certainly possible to honor this day with some family traditions as well. In years past, we've had, you know, grapes on the table this day because it's a, a harvest day. When the kids were little, my wife would bake a birthday cake in honor of Our Lady as well. And I think it's those little things, it's those family traditions that stay with you. Uh, Father Bill McCarthy used to tell the story of a woman who took her little boy to church on the Feast of the Nativity of Mary and told him it, it's Mary's birthday. And she lit a uh, candle in front of the statue and knelt down to pray. And the little fellow sang, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. And he blew out the candles. <laughs> Well, Betty and I have six children. They're grown now. We still have three at home. The youngest is a senior in high school. However, we still pray the rosary together every evening as a family. You know, our two oldest children are married and have families of their own, but they're still practicing Catholics, thanks be to God, and they continue uh, family traditions in their own homes. Father Lavozic said, children forget many things when they grow up. 
but they do not forget the manly piety of their father or the gentle devotion of their mother and the love of Jesus and Mary as the support of the home in sorrow and in joy. I certainly hope that that's true for our family and for all Catholic parents who try to give their children the best example of love for our Lord and Our Lady that they can. Final word on this, the prophets foretold the coming of the Savior in a manner in which the redemption of the Lord, uh, and the manner, I should say, in which the redemption of the Lord would take place. They also spoke of his virgin mother and the part that she would play in the redemption of mankind. Uh, Balaam referred to her prophetically in Numbers 24, 17 as the star that shall arise from Jacob. The prophet Isaiah said the virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and she will name him Emmanuel, which is quoted by Matthew in the New Testament. Father Lebozik said her birth was awaited as the near sign of the deliverance of the human race. The church regards her as the rising dawn, as the dawn proceeds and announces the coming of the sun, makes the darkness of night disappear, consoles the sick, and rejoices all nature. So Mary went before and announced Jesus, the son of justice, who makes the darkness of the world disappear by the light of his gospel, consoled and cured the sick in soul and body, and brought an abundance of graces and blessings to the whole world. The collect uh, for the Feast of Nativity in the extraordinary form, Nativity of Mary, is bestow upon thy servants, we beseech thee, O Lord, the gift of thy heavenly grace, that to us for whom the childbearing of the Blessed Virgin was the beginning of our salvation, the solemn feast of her nativity may give increase of peace. O our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son, who livest and reignest with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Uh, okay, while we're at it, the gospel for the last Sunday in the extraordinary form, and it's the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, was Luke 7, 11 through 16, Jesus raises the widow's son of Nain. Now, in this gospel, God manifests himself once again, as he did in the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, uh, as the evangelist recounts how Jesus traveled to Nain and met a funeral procession, leaving the village. A widow's only son was dead, leaving her virtually helpless. But Jesus brought the young man back to life. And this miracle, which is recorded only in Luke, reveals our Lord's divine power, his compassion for people's needs, and more. So without further ado, the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Soon afterward, Jesus was, went to a town called Nain, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd. As he drew near to the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his widowed mother. A large group of people from the town accompanied her. When the Lord saw her, he was filled with compassion, and he said to her, Do not weep. After this, he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers halted. Then he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all who were present, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, this miracle took place in a little village just uh, about six miles southwest of Nazareth. And Luke is the only one who reports it. And the, the village of Nain is not otherwise mentioned in the Bible. But the first thing we can see from this passage is that honoring the dead was important in Jewish tradition. You know, a funeral procession might see the family and friends of the dead person following the body, um, you know, which would, would 
stretch and stretch and and the body would be wrapped in cloth and carried on a beer uh kind of like 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 a stretcher and and the funeral procession would include musicians and hired mourners as well as the friends of and relatives so it could be quite a crowd the musicians would play a dirge the mourners would cry and lament in order to draw attention to the proceedings and as they made their way through the town the bystanders uh, bystanders would be expected to join in and then the family would continue to mourn for 30 days now the mother of the dead man in this case was an even uh, a sadder situation because in the Jewish culture of that day, the, this woman's future was well bleak to say the least she's identified as a widow, which means her husband was already dead. And with the death of her only son would have lost her last means of support. The gospel calls her son a man. So it's probable that she was not likely to remarry being, you know, older and that funeral uh, and when it was over and the crowd went home, she'd be left with her grief, penniless, alone. And, and so, as Luke emphasizes, this is just the kind of person Jesus came to help. And so he did. All right, we'll be right back with Michael Whitcraft right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm doing the show remotely today from our, uh, you know, Southern Command Center south of the uh, Orange Curtain. So I am not in the studio. I am hopeful that we have Mr. Michael Whitcraft on the line to talk about a new book called The Synodal Process is a Pandora's Box, 100 Questions and Answers. Michael Whitcraft, are you with us? Yes, sir. I'm here, Matthew. Oh. Oh, very good, Michael. Uh, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Well, you're very welcome. Of course, you've appeared on the program before, but it's been a while. So to begin with, I, I yeah. wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and then what this new book is all about. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Michael Whitcraft, and I coordinate the efforts of an organization called the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. Uh, we go by TFP, Tradition, Family, and Property. I coordinate the activities of TFP in Southern California and Hawaii. And TFP is an organization that was founded, were uh, inspired entirely by the Catholic Church, and specifically by devotion to Our Lady. Um, our main inspiration and our main defining quality is the fact that we're all consecrated as slaves to the Blessed Virgin, according to the method of St. Louis de Montfort. So uh, our organization was founded in order to confront and resist a moral crisis in society. We do this primarily uh, by being very involved in our culture. We're an educational organization. We try to inform people about cultural things, uh, how they square or don't square with our Catholic faith. Uh, and of course, when things are very, very serious, like is the case with the, the upcoming synods, uh, we will get involved in uh, issues that are more predominantly dealing with the church herself. All right, very good. Now, um, <clears throat> there is a new book. I, I mentioned the title. The Synodal Process is a Pandora's Box, 100 Q Questions and Answers. Can you tell us uh, just kind of generally about the book, uh, maybe why it was written, and maybe something about the authors? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the book was written in order to inform the public about something very serious that is coming up. 
which will be a two-phase synod on synodality. Um, a synod, of course, is uh, a gathering. It's a meeting of the bishops that is in nature purely con- consultative. Uh, the, the purpose of it is for the bishops to get together, share their experiences, and give consultation to the Holy Father and to the Church. Um, the, uh, the upcoming one is kind of uh, strange in that it's being defined as a synod on synodality. Well, hmm. if a synod is a meeting, it's kind of like a, a meeting on meetingness or something like that. <laughs> it's a little bit confusing what, what exactly is going on here, but this upcoming synod, I said, is going to be in two phases. The first phase will take place this October, the second one next October. That's October of 2024. Mm-hmm. And it is a movement within the church that strives above all um, to democratize the church, to mm-hmm. destroy the difference between the teaching and the learning church. And there's a lot of consequences to this uh, that are very, very frightening for the future of the church. Um, in addition to striking down that difference, there is a lot of activity that is very questionable. Um, things are going to be brought up like, uh, the acceptance of homosexual unions within the church, uh, women priests, uh, you name it, the whole gamut of progressive, uh, activities within the church are going to be discussed. But I think what's more important than that is this idea of leveling out the difference between the teaching and the learning church. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be too long-winded, Matthew, but the idea right. is <laughs> they're going to set up a, a committee where they will be listening to the faithful Catholics, people of other Christian religions, people of other religions, and even atheists. And this commission that will listen hopes to empower this committee in a way that will allow them to make structural, doctrinal, and moral changes to the church. Mm. So yes, all of these crazy things are being discussed, but if, if that is successful, then in the future, it will be so much more easy to in- introduce other doctrinal innovations, moral innovations, you have it. Wow. Yeah, that said, I mean, I'm sorry to say that sounds a little uh, on the ominous side. Um, yes, sir. You know, absolutely. Particularly the ambiguity. And I, I yes. want to mention that the book is, I mean, it's available through the various um, channels, and I'll let you give uh, some contact information for TFP if you want uh, in a moment. But absolutely. I, I also want to let everybody know that it, um, you guys have made it available online in a, in a yeah. PDF form. And I will have the, the URL for that in the show notes for on today's podcast. Wonderful. So when people go to the podcast, they go to the show notes and they can just click right on it right there and go directly there. It's available in several um, ebook formats also. Oh, excellent. And those, the ebook is free. So you've got EPUB. I I don't know all the the details. I'm not that tech savvy, (laughs) but it has four or five different, uh, different um, formats that you can download it for free with. Well, I've you know I've been reading it online on the on the PDF version uh, that's online, and I have not. I, full disclosure, I haven't finished it yet, but I have read enough to say that I can hardly recommend it. And I was particularly impressed, I think, by the the foreword that was written by Cardinal uh, Raymond Burke. By Cardinal Burke. Yeah, you know, yeah. and he says yeah. uh, I got a quote in front of me. He says we are told 
that the church, which we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic, is now to be defined by synodality, a term which has no history in the doctrine of the church and for which there's no responsible or no reasonable rather definition. You know, I've got a theory about that that I'm going to talk about last week, but uh, how, how do the authors define synodality? Well, synodality, again, is this approach where the church becomes a listening church. Um, the uh, Pope Francis and the uh, Synod Fathers are all saying that we need to listen to everyone without any preconceived ideas. And the focus like of Catholicism, for example. <laughs> or revelation, let's say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So no pre predetermined conceptions. We listen. We have to listen especially to those who feel marginalized within the Church. And I think we all know what that means. Yes, yeah, I think that's very much the idea. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you. Sinners that don't want to even change. Right. They want to change. Well, they want the, to be yeah, accepted. Well, as, we're all sinners, but yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's putting this listening process over revelation. Hmm. And it is diminishing the role of the clergy in order to uh, make accessible to the public and to clarify revelation. You, you gave a very good explanation on church doctrine at the beginning, that the pope or the bishops cannot change anything that's in the deposit of faith. Obviously, they can't. Right. Well, in addition to that, it is the clergy who was tasked by Christ himself to clarify and reveal uh, that body of Catholic revelation. You know, Christ said, he who hears you, hears me. He said to the clergy, go ye and teach all nations. So when you take out that, um, that power, that um, God-given authority of the clergy, those who are tasked with leading the church, you make a fundamental change in the church herself. And Cardinal Mueller went so far as to say that change, implementation of that change, would destroy the church as we know it. Well, okay, that's that's pretty strong. And uh, that's pretty I must, strong. You know, now, obviously, I'm sorry, Matthew. It's, oh, it's all right. Go ahead. I was just going to say before we get deeper into this. I mean, it sounds so terrible, and it is, but none of this is a foregone conclusion. Um, this is what's going to be decided at the two synods, and there is a sharp division amongst the bishops. Mm -hmm. uh, many, many cardinals, very, very solid cardinals, of course, you mentioned Cardinal Burke, uh, have expressed concern about this, Cardinal Mueller, uh, Cardinal Pell before he passed. So it very much is a question where there's, there's a struggle going on right now. And it's not clear that this way of, of being is going to, to prevail in the end. Right. You know, um, Michael, I must say one of the features of the book that I particularly appreciate is that it is arranged in question and answer format, like a catechism. So exactly, when, exactly. When you approach it, and especially in the, in the PDF version, um, each one of the questions is hyperlinked. So if you have some particular thing that you're wondering about this synod, you can go to the table of contents, you know, uh, read through the questions quickly, find what you're looking for, Click on it and go directly to the page. I mean, that's just that's that's a terrific use of the modern yeah, technology absolutely. and also the the traditional way of of you know um, giving information like this to do it to do it sure. in that, that you know question and answer format. It's just it's just genius, and uh, and yeah, I, I like that very, format. Very, very convenient. 
Very much so. And I think it takes something that's a very complicated issue and having the question and answers format, it makes it very accessible to anyone. That's right. It breaks it down into into reasonable, you know, manageable chunks, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, Very, very much so. You know, from what I've read so far and from your remarks today, it's um, pretty clear that the Synod process, you know, claims to be giving this primary role to listening to the faithful. Um, and which kind of goes against this traditional understanding that 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 mm-hmm. they are the, the the primary teachers. They are the teaching church. The faithful comprise the listening church. Mm-hmm. So the the process Absolutely. is you know kind of turning it on its head. And you know since I was certainly not consulted, you know the question <laughs> comes up. You know who who's the synod allegedly listening to? And and you gave the you gave the answer, and, and I think that's important to recognize also. It's a listening church, and they, they don't want to leave anybody behind, and they're going out to the margins, and, well, traditional Catholics uh, need not apply, apparently. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah uh, I wanted to mention that as one. I mean, you mentioned the problems we're having in the diocese of Los Angeles and Orange County with the traditional Mass. I mean, as a traditional Catholic, I certainly feel marginalized but I don't think my voice is going to be uh, recorded and discussed at the Senate. I mean, probably not. In reality. No, sir. The other thing, I mean, since, since, the, since this seems to be, you know, it's so important, you know, we, 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 so it just seems that the, the faithful in general are not interested. And, and I hope, I, we're just uh, 10 seconds away. Uh, so I want uh, to encourage everybody to get their copy. And Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Matthew. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Okay, I kind of uh, lost track of time and ran out of uh, time in that last segment, so I want to say thank you one more time to Michael Whitcraft for being with us today and to remind you that the link for the um, the online version of the book, The Synodal Process, is a Pandora's Box, 100 Questions and Answers, will be in the show notes for uh, the, the podcast of today's No Nonsense Catholic. So I, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, and back to what we were talking about early in the program, um, September is the uh, is a Marian month, and we think of May as the month of Mary or October as the month of the Rosary. But September not only has the Feast of the Nativity of Mary on the 8th, which we talked about earlier, but yesterday, the 12th, was the Holy Name of Mary. And coming up this Friday is the Memorial of the Seven Sorrows of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is the, the theme for the month, the Sorrows of Mary for the month of September. And I did a, uh, what was it, a DVD and, and audio production on the Seven Sorrows for Promultus Media some years ago. I think it's available now through formed.org. And uh, the Seven Sorrows are the prophecy of Simeon, the flight into Egypt, the loss of the child Jesus in the temple, and the meeting of Jesus and Mary on the way of the cross, the crucifixion, taking down the body of Jesus from the cross, and then the burial of Jesus. So devotion to the seven sorrows, also known as the seven dolors, goes back to the Middle Ages and was passed on by St. Bridget, uh, who said that the Blessed Virgin Mary grants seven graces to the souls who honor her by reciting seven Hail Marys daily, meditating on her tears and dolors, or sorrows. 
And these are the seven graces. Number one, I will grant peace to their families. Number two, they'll be enlightened about the divine mysteries. Number three, I will console them in their pains and I will accompany them in their work. Number four, I will give them as much as they ask for, as long as it does not oppose the adorable will of my divine son or the sanctification of their souls. Number five, I will defend them in their spiritual battles with the infernal enemy, and I will protect them at every instance of their lives. Number six, I will visibly help them at the moment of their death. They will see the face of their mother. I think that's my favorite one. And number seven, I have obtained this grace from my son that those who propagate this devotion to my tears and dolors will be taken directly from this earthly life to eternal happiness, since all their sins will be forgiven, and my son and I will enter their eternal consolation and joy. That's not bad. Now, obviously, reciting uh, the seven Hail Marys while meditating on her sorrows is not the same as sacramental absolution, but it assumes that you will be making um, good recourse to frequent confession and or a frequent communion and regular confession if you are the kind of person who would be devoted to the sorrows of Mary. And you notice the seven sorrows include, or I should say that the Holy Mass for the memorial of the seven sorrows of Mary includes one of the four sequences of the Roman liturgy. We have the Victime Paschali Laudes at Easter Sunday, the Veni Sanctus Spiritus, Come Holy Spirit, on Pentecost. Uh, Corpus Christi has the magnificent Lauda Zion that was composed by St. Thomas Aquinas. And the sequence for Our Lady of Sorrows is the Stabat Mater Dolorosa. Fortunately, these traditional sequences have been retained in the Novus Ordo Mise. Unfortunately, they are optional. So if you attend the new Mass, you may or may not hear the Stabat Mater this year, but it is very beautiful. And of course, it's probably in your prayer book and you can find it online. Uh, I suspect many Catholics know the Stabat Mater from making the Stations of the Cross. The, the stanzas of the Stabat Mater are traditionally sung or recited between each station when the priest and the acolytes process you know, from one station to the next. Now, years ago, again, my company, Promultus Media, produced a Way of the Cross for Children on DVD. That includes the Stabat Mater sung between the stations by a group of children, most of them mine. And it is adorable, but it's, it's appropriately solemn, which is important because the Stabat Mater is about the prophecy of Simeon, that a sword would pierce Mary's heart, uh, that prophecy which was fulfilled by our Lord's sorrowful passion. The 2010 correction of the English translation of the Novus Ordo Mise essentially retains that traditional translation, which is wonderful, except for one glaring and entirely unnecessary exception. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Sabbat Mater, but what we hear at Mass, what you would find in your Missal, uh, is essentially the traditional translation, but with these exceptions. You know, there, there are some archaic words here. You know, when was the last time you used the word whelmed to mean overcome, or rent to mean torn, or hast for has, nigh meaning near, or lest meaning for fear that? Probably seldom to never, <laughs> I'm assuming. And yet these words are, are comprehensible, even if only through context. And they are retained, uh, thankfully, and I think not merely to follow the tradition, but because the meter 
and the rhyme structure depend on them. To to change them would do violence to to both the meter and the rhyme. So what is the exception that I mentioned? It is in the new translation. Every use of thee, thou, or thine has been anachronistically replaced with you. Now, I've explained before that there's an important distinction between thee, thou, thine, you, yours, uh, you and yours, but even though, it, it, you know, they change it even when it sounds out of place, even when it doesn't does violence to the rhyme structure. For example, one of the stanzas is, O sweet mother, font of love, touch my spirit from above, make my heart with thine accord. And that just sounds better than make my heart with yours accord, which is also more difficult to say or to sing. Make me feel as thou hast felt. Sounds better than make me feel as you have felt. And again, it's it's more difficult to say. Uh, the latter is more difficult to say. But note the rhyme structure of the sequence. The last word of the first two lines in each stanza rhyme, and the final word of the third lines of every other stanza rhyme, which connects them and makes it flow. So in this case, O sweet mother, font of love, touch my spirit from above, make my heart with thine accord. Make me feel as thou hast felt, make my soul to glow and melt with the love of Christ my Lord. So accord and my Lord rhyme. But this nonsensical animus towards thee, thy, and thou uh, has, I mean, it's especially revealed when it destroys that structure. For example, virgins of all virgins blessed, list, listen to my fond request, let me share your grief divine. Let me to my latest breath in my body bear the death of that dying son of yours. No, no. Grief divine, that dying son of thine. See, it's incomprehensibly tone deaf not to allow the use of thine, uh, I mean, even just in the name of poetic license. It's incomprehensible. It's just plain imbecilic to insist on changing thee and thou uh, to you for the sake of modern man, quote unquote, when it serves no purpose. And even when it does direct violence to a work of great beauty. The sequence of the Stabat Mater is meant to help us memorialize the sorrows of Mary. It should not be an occasion to add to them. And that's no nonsense. So since you may not be hearing it tomorrow, I'd like to close uh, with the, the Stabat Mater in, you know, minus the you and yours. At the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. Through her heart, his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing, now, at length, the sword has passed. Oh, how sad and sore distressed was that mother highly blessed of the soul begotten one. Christ above in torment hangs. She beneath beholds the pangs of her dying glorious son. Is there one who would not weep, whelmed in miseries so deep, Christ's dear mother to behold? Can the human heart refrain from partaking in her pain, in that mother's pain untold? Bruised, derided, cursed, defiled, she beheld her tender child, all with bloody scourges rent. For the sins of his own nation saw him hang in desolation, till his spirit forth he sent. O sweet mother, font of love, touch my spirit from above, make my heart with thine accord. 
Make me feel as thou hast felt. Make my soul to glow and melt with the love of Christ my Lord. Holy Mother, pierce me through. In my heart each wound renew of my Savior crucified. Let me share with thee his pain, who for all our sins was slain, who for me in torments died. Let me mingle tears with thee, mourning him who mourned for me all the days that I might live. By the cross with thee to stay, there with thee to weep and pray, as all I ask of thee to give. Virgin of all virgins blessed, listen to my fond request. Let me share thy grief divine. Let me to my latest breath in my body bear the death of that dying son of thine. Wounded with his every wound, steep my soul till it has swooned in his very blood away. Be to me, O virgin, nigh, lest in flames I burn and die in his awful judgment day. Christ, when you shall call me hence, be thy mother my defense, be thy cross my victory. While my body here decays, may my soul thy goodness praise, safe in heaven eternally. Amen. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. All right, well, we've uh, made it through another one. Special thanks once again to our guest, Michael Whitcraft. And again, the book uh, that he's promoting is The Synod Pro or the Synodal Process is a Pandora's Box, 100 Questions and Answers. And you can get that on Amazon and through the usual channels, I'm sure the TFP website. And you can access it online for free, in the, and the URL will be in the show notes. Finally, I uh, got a uh, uh, conference coming up. Uh, Terry Barber and I and others will be speaking at the uh, Bishop Sheen conference that's coming up this October the 14th and also on October the 2nd. The NPR, uh, where Terry and Jesse are going to join the folks in Tyler, Texas for a rosary rally, a rosary crusade for the defense and the support of Bishop Strickland. So, Please uh, check all that out. We're going to be sending out an email on that, I believe, tomorrow for those of you who are on our email list. If you're not on our email list, go to vmpr, vmpr.org. Get on it right away. Also, a, a donation would be gladly accepted. Uh, you, there's a, a button right on the homepage that says Donate Now, and you can become a monthly donor, make a one-time donation. We are always in genuine need of that. And uh, until next time, I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, more to say about the Synod and synod Synodality next week. But for now, may God richly bless you and your family.